So we're going to look at Philippians 3 and we're going to look at um, what section we're going to. We're looking at 4 to 11. I'm not going to read it now. I'll read the bits as we go. But that's what we're looking at. And this section kind of comes out of asking a question. What makes a Christian? You know, you might be surprised because lots of people think that's a really easy question, but it's not. Uh, if I object to something that the world is doing that's very popular, so if I say that I disagree with same-sex marriage, or if I say that I disagree with divorce, or if I disagree with sex outside of marriage, some people would call me not a very good Christian. Yeah, because they're saying, well, you're not being very nice to those people. I said, well, actually, we are very nice to those people, but we don't necessarily agree on all things. You know, the Bible is quite clear about what truth is, and we have a responsibility in how we deal within that. And that doesn't mean we ostracize people. That doesn't mean that we say bad things about people, but it means we also say, well, this is what we believe. And so the question is, what makes a Christian? Another way of asking that is what makes an effective follower of Jesus? I've put effective there because I think a lot of people kind of want to follow Jesus but they don't feel very effective in it and so we're asking the question how do we become effective? Some argue it's all about behaviour. Yeah, they will say, being a Christian is about what we do. Others say, no, no, it's about truth. It's about what we believe. It's about our creeds and about our statement of faith. And still others will say, well, it depends what church you belong to. Yeah, if you're part of that church down the road, then you're not a Christian. But if you're part of my church, well, we're all good Christians. Added to that comes this question, how is it that some believers in Christ thrive in the midst of difficulty? You know, we've had two challenging years. And some believers have come through that unscathed and stronger in their faith. And yet, over the years, I've also met believers who even when there is no real hardship, they seem to wilt. So what is it that makes a believer? What is it that determines a Christian? And I would say to you, the single most important thing is a personal, intimate relationship with God. This is what he's talking about. I'm going to get into that in a moment. Now, let me be really clear. It's not knowing about God. Everybody knows about God, and all those views differ. It's not about knowing about God. It's also not about knowing God theologically. That means in terms of doctrine or liturgy or creed. You know, we can go to a church and we can repeat liturgy and creed, but we might never know God. Suppose in the same way that people pledge allegiance to the Queen and they go through everything that they will do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they know the Queen. It's also not the same as knowing God. What was that, me? It's also not the same as knowing God through another person. 
You know, God does not have grandchildren. Did you know that? What do I mean by that? It means it is our personal faith that makes us children of God, not the faith of my mum and dad, not the faith of my grandparents. It comes down to us. We need to know and experience God in a personal way. And this knowing that I'm on about is in this section in Philippians chapter 3, which is why I want to look at it. So we've got two sections here, Philippians 3, 4 to 6 and 3, 7 to 11. And one section is being contrasted with another section. Okay, so we're going to look at both of those separately. This first section is talking about human achievement. It's all Paul, who is writing this letter, is saying to the people, if we look at human achievement, he says this. Though, this is verse 4 from Philippians 3, though I myself have reasons for confidence, that is in his own achievements, he says if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in their flesh, by flesh he's talking about his achievements, he says, I have more. And he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now I'm going to pause for a moment, because for most of us that means nothing. Because it's all Christian speak. Pharisee, law, righteousness, zeal. But if I put it into modern society now, it might sound a bit like this. Well, I was born into the royal family. I was dedicated as a baby to be a future holder of the crown. At school, I won pupil of the year every year. And when I left, I won pupil of the whole school. It would sound like this, I achieved five A-stars when I finished school. I studied at Oxford and Cambridge and I hold no less than six degrees and two PhDs. I was the chair of every committee, club and house at school and university. I volunteered at the local homeless shelter. I cared for the elderly. I helped those with substance abuse walk free and my character has never been sullied. I've not been drunk, I've not been promiscuous, I've never belittled anyone, and I've never used social media to express my anger. When it comes to human achievement, I am exemplary. That's what he's saying. His achievements were phenomenal. Now maybe you can have a think for a moment. I wonder what kind of achievements you've done over the years. What kind of qualifications, what kind of job, how you've done this degree and that degree and how you did really well at school and how you're the best in this area. You know, Paul is talking about some pretty amazing stuff that he has done and it is these achievements that he is bringing into comparison in the next section that we're about to look at. Impressive, hey? And then in verse 7... It starts with this little word, but. And he says this from verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want you to notice a few things. In verse 7, he uses this phrase twice, I consider. He says, I now consider loss. What does he consider as loss? Whatever he has gained in human achievement, he's saying, now I consider that a loss. And then in verse 8, he says again, I consider everything a loss. He's adding in the word everything to say, I've achieved all of these great things. I've done all of these amazing things. And now I'm adding to that everything else that I have. And I'm saying absolutely everything is a loss. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, they've just had the Oscars, and apart from this amazing hiccup with, that went on there, you know, these people, I mean, one of the interesting articles that I read, it says, says but they've decided he can keep his Oscar. Because that's the most important thing, people. But people who achieve those things, they have this special shelf done, and they all stand on there, all these achievements. And here's Paul saying, you know what, all of this stuff, I'm considering it a loss. I'm considering all of it a loss. Why is everything a loss? Let me read again. I'm reading from a different Bible translation. This is Philippians 3, 8 to 9. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Now, when I was studying this, one of the footnotes about this word garbage says this. The word translated garbage was often used in Greek as a vulgar term for fecal matter. That's poo. As such, it would most likely have had a certain shock value for the readers. This may well be Paul's meaning here, especially since the context about what the flesh produces. Do you see how against he is to everything that he has gained in human terms? Everything that, is he that he's achieved, everything, he says... Compared to gaining and knowing Christ, these things are nothing. You may be thinking, but why? Why would you say all of human achievements are nothing? What's so valuable in gaining and knowing Christ? Why should I consider those things of rubbish? Well, there are two things here. When you read the passage, it says... Paul says that I may gain Christ and that I may know Christ. They are not the same thing. 
There are two things he's saying here. When he's talking about gaining Christ, in verse 9, he says, um, it's about not having a righteousness of my own. Gaining is about gaining righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean? Righteousness simply means that my standing with God is now right. If you break the law, you are in bad standing with the government, with the police, whatever. You've got to sort all of those things out to become right standing. When people go to prison, when they come out, they are now in right standing with the community because they've paid the price for all they've done wrong. And here Paul says, he says that I want to gain Christ, which means he wants to gain a right standing with God. It means that everything we do on this planet will never ever give us a right standing with God. You can win all the achievements. You can be the most humanitarian person on the planet. You can give away all your money and everything, but that will not give you right standing with God. That's why Paul says it's all rubbish, because it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that one thing about making me right with God. And so how do we find righteousness? Well, he says it comes by having faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why Jesus? Because he died. Because his punishment was our punishment. And if we have faith in Jesus in doing that, then we are put into right standing with God. You know, the Christian faith is the only faith that says you'll never, ever get there. Jesus has to get there for you. That's why it's so essential. And nowadays, everybody's going around saying, oh, look, I've achieved this. Have you noticed that when you meet strangers, the first thing you say is, well, what do you do? It's about achievement. And here, Paul is saying, everything I ever did did not make one whit of difference, did not make one single difference in terms of my relationship with God because I'm still a sinner. And now Jesus has accomplished it. And I can appropriate that into my own life by knowing him and by spending time with him, putting faith in him. So gaining Christ is about gaining a right standing with God that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he moves on to verse 10 and he says, but I want to know Christ. I want to know him. And that's the second reason he considers everything rubbish. He's giving out his heart's desire. And, and again, you, you come to this question, why does Paul want to give everything up so that he can know Christ? You know, if you look at a lot of religions across the world, I don't know any of them that talk in terms of having a personal relationship with their God. Not with Allah, not with the millions of gods in the Hindu nation. There is none. You don't get to know Buddha. But here, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Now, usually we look at it out of what we will gain from it, which is gaining Christ, the righteousness. But Paul's looking at it purely from a relational point of view. I want to know him. He is so good, 
which is demonstrated in his love for me in dying on the cross. I want to know him. Have you ever heard about a person, you know, um, uh, over the years, you, somebody will talk about a person and somebody else will talk about a person. And they say, you know what, I really wish I knew that person. They sound really, really good. And here's Paul saying, Jesus is so amazing that I'm happy to lose all of those things if I gain his friendship and a knowledge and an intimate relationship with him. In many ways, it's like marriage. In marriage, you are forsaking anybody else as your partner and saying, only this one. Only this one. But you know, it's about an intimacy with Jesus. It's about a relationship. It's about fellowship. It's not just about a supply of what we need, but that's included. It's about never being alone. You see, those who know God can get through COVID because they're not on their own. Because Jesus is there. It's about being loved. It's about genuine, deep and perfect love. I've come to a really simple conclusion that until we experience the love of God, we will never ever find a right relationship in terms of a love relationship on the earth. You see, God can love us in a way that brings us peace, acceptance, satisfaction, value, and we will never get that, not even in a marriage relationship. You know, divorce rates are just crazy. I mean, nowadays, people are saying it's not even worth getting married because the divorce rate's so high, and that's simply because people do not really know what genuine love is. For all the fact that we have more romantic movies produced each year, they are all a load of guff. I'm sorry, I'm a bloke, you know. And the reason they're a load of guff is because they don't actually talk about the reality of the relationship or the commitment of it. I don't know whether I should say this. I'll probably get shot afterwards. You know, you watch this movie and, and they have this romantic moment. Have you noticed they never pass wind? <laughs> have you noticed that? It would probably kill the mood. Let me tell you from having been married, those things do happen. They're never sitting there with a romantic meal and while he's talking with his mouth full, he's spitting food out and just going, oh, what's he doing? Why? Because it's romanticized. The irony for me is the actors that portray these things are the ones who are divorced and remarried more than anybody else. Sorry, it's my little diatribe on... You know, it's important to know that Jesus... Because the thing is, we can end up with this thing that we think the be-all and end-all of life is something like marriage. It's not. There are different callings. For some people, the call is to be single. For others, actually, being married is a call. And each of them has separate benefits and challenges. And Paul says that as you read throughout that. And so we're all the same because fundamentally what we need, whether we are married or not married, we need to experience the love of God and the love of God makes all other relationships work. Because without it, we will be looking from other people what only God can supply. I want to challenge you this morning. Maybe you too need to make a comparison. 
Maybe you need to get a pair of scales and you need to take everything that you value, everything that you've achieved, and you need to put it on this side. And you put Jesus here and then you step back and say, what do I really want here? It's about gaining Christ. And if Christ doesn't have that value, we will always go to this stuff. I mean, the interesting thing is what he goes on to say is that when you gain Christ, you are not freed from suffering and death. I was talking to somebody yesterday, not from here, but they phoned up a friend who was a Christian, and the friend is elderly and said, I pray to Jesus that I wouldn't fall over. I fell over four times. I'm no longer believing in Jesus. Now, I find that sad because... Nowhere does Jesus say he's going to supernaturally take us out of any form of suffering. Well, we don't. There are genuine, amazing Christians who've been killed in the Ukraine. Nothing to do with them. It's part of a world that is racked with sin and been destroyed by what the devil does. So why would I want to know Jesus? Because I tell you what, I would have gone mad ten times over if Jesus hadn't kept my sanity by walking with me. You know, what we see in the world is enough to break the strongest of us and it's not going to get better. And so the invitation of Jesus is that he will forgive our sin, that he will walk with us, that he will love us beyond any kind of human love that we can possibly see. And we will have a relationship that will endure all things. Because Paul says, you know, further down, he says, I want to share in the suffering of Jesus. You see, we only would ever suffer for someone if we really loved them. Any parent will suffer for their child easily, dead easy. How many times over your sick child have you said, Lord, give it to me and don't let them suffer? It's because there's this love relationship that we have. And that is exactly the kind of relationship that Jesus wants us to have with him. The encouraging thing is that Paul also says, I want the resurrection power. I want the resurrection power within that. You know, I would say to you this morning, church, the only hope for our nation is us, the church. And I'm not on about Hope Church alone. I'm on about all the churches across the world. We are the hope of the nation. The answer isn't in politics. The God of this world, he'll see to it that that goes um, pear-shaped every time. We are the hope of the nations, but it comes from our knowledge of God. If there was one thing that I would say to anybody who wants to follow Jesus, what is the most important thing that you can ever do in your life? Yep, you need to repent of your sin, you need to turn to Jesus. But outside of that, it is a daily time with Jesus. I cannot overemphasize to you how reading a chapter or two of the Bible every day and talking to Jesus about your life and listening to him, I cannot overemphasize how important that is. That is the most important thing 
you will ever do in your lifetime because it's not just about making a decision as a one-off, it's about walking. You know, why do we have so many divorces when people fall in love and they, they, their stomach churns and they see stars and they get goosebumps? Why is it five years down the road that they get divorced? i tell you why. Because unless there is a daily relational intimacy, it will all disappear. And you have believers who made a decision 40 years ago, but when you say, what is Jesus to you now? It's a kind of, oh, I don't know. And it's because they're not daily walking in that relationship. And, and you know when that relationship has gone stale by a kind of, I don't want to do this. You know, out of all the things I do in my life, one of the things that I love the most is spending time with God. Now that does not mean that I get an audible voice or I get phenomenal revelation. No, but there is just something within it it's like, I can't even explain it to you, but I'm drawn to it each day and I know the days when I don't do it. And so I want to encourage you this morning, gaining Christ and knowing Christ, that's what it's all about. And the gaining should lead to knowing. If we just remain in the gaining where we've got our sin dealt with, we will never ever get through suffering and hardship. And, and I can't guarantee to you to say you will not go through it. If you want to know about suffering hardship, you talk to some of our older folks who've got back problems and knee problems and, and every single day just getting out of bed is a problem. People who can't see properly, people who are reliant upon other people to get here, to get there, to have their, their food done and what have you. And you learn humility, you know. And, and folks will say, well, why does God allow it? I think God allows it because actually we need it. We need to learn when we're not independent. When we're young and our bodies are young and everything is functioning, we don't need anybody. Well, actually, you still do, but you don't think you do. And so God allows us to go through things that bring humility. And humility is the most amazing thing because God gives grace to the humble. The only way we will ever get grace is through, through humility. And God allows suffering and hardship. I, I, I can't argue this theologically from the Bible so you can strike this off as me being a heretic. But I personally believe that God sometimes allows us to suffer because that suffering does something that enables us to get to heaven without which we wouldn't get there. Can't explain it to you, but I, I, I kind of sense it and see it when I, I see how God interacts with people on the earth. The world sees suffering as completely negative, but for God it is a very valuable thing because suffering is the only thing that will change your heart. Nothing else does. An award doesn't change your heart. It might make you more proud. It might make you more arrogant. But suffering, coming to a point where you can't and you rely on somebody else, all of a sudden it brings a humility. Yeah, we need God. We need God. And so I want to encourage you. This amazing section is where Paul is willing to say, everything in my world, it's all a whole load of rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you get one thing in your life, get this relationship with God because it will be the only thing 
that you can hold on to to the end of your days. Who would have thought we are now, we would ever end up now where we are as a nation? Who would have thought that? And yet the consistent thing is Jesus. He has been around, you know, for 2,000 years walking with those who follow him and helping them to navigate wars and persecution and famines, all kinds of, he is walking with us in it. And I am so, so happy that God walks with me because I haven't got a clue what the future holds. And so I want to encourage you, if you have never invited Jesus into your life, I want to encourage you to do it as soon as you can do it. But that's just the beginning. And maybe some of you as believers, maybe it's gone a bit cold and a bit stale. And you kind of come to church out of habit or maybe you don't even know why you still, maybe it's because mum and dad or other folks are saying, oh, you know, my daughter, my son, whatever. And I want to encourage you, maybe it's time to just revisit Jesus. And so you know what, Lord? I just think of that testimony at the beginning from the guy in um, the Ukraine, not yet, in the Ukraine, Poland. And he said, Jesus, if you're going to save me, save me now. What a good prayer. Save me now. Maybe it's time to say again, Lord, I've drifted a bit. Things have gone a bit funny here or there, but save me now. You know, he's not a condemnatory God. He doesn't condemn you, doesn't point the finger at you, but he longs to walk with you so that you walk the right path. Let's pray.